What's up, comrades? Welcome to the Left Side of Liberty podcast, and it's good to be back here with you. I've been away for a couple weeks, I think, but, uh, you know, I've had things to do and places to go and people to see, so haven't really had a lot of time to to be with you here. But I'm glad that I'm able to be back here with you guys today. And um, I have, as usual, a very, uh, very good show. So let's dive right into it. The first uh, segment, as you guys know, is the double video breakdown, and the first video that I want to um, break down is a PragerU video, because I haven't done a PragerU, a breakdown of a PragerU video in a while, so um, I figured that you guys may want to hear me do that again because it's fun for me and it's probably fun for you uh, to listen to me just rip these videos apart because I can understand why, like, if you're in the sort of right-wing and Christian fundamentalist bubble, why these arguments would sound strong and appealing to you. But for anybody outside of that bubble, I mean, even, like, centrists like Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, uh, and Hillary Clinton is more of a right-winger, really, uh, in reality, the people like Charlie Kirk, who's presenting this, uh, this video, he would hate to hear me say that, but it's true. Hillary Clinton is largely right wing sorry you know facts don't care about your feelings which is interesting because i have a ben shapiro video that i'm going to play uh after the prager you video from charlie kirk but anyway i think there's a uh another unintended theme here about uh you know because last week there was kind of the unintended theme of just bad arguments by black conservatives and <clears throat> this theme this week is people that to some people they sound strong but to other people they just sound like whiny babies you know like it's not strength that they're projecting it's not strength that they're it's not from a place of strength that they're coming from it's from a place of pure ideological insecurity and weakness you know so anyway let's get to the first video here this is charlie kirk with divest you you know like prager you divest you you know so trying to be clever there but anyway take it away charlie kirk Hold on, there's an ad, of course there's an ad. 
Uh, we'll skip through this here. Here we go. Year after year, Americans pour billions of dollars into colleges and universities. I'm not talking about the outrageous tuition costs, living expenses, and fees, the debt pit students fall into. And I'm not talking about the tax money, our money, colleges and universities get from federal and state governments. I'm talking about the money Americans are handing over to these institutions of their own free will. In 2017, that number was $44 billion. $44 billion in donations in one year from alumni and other donors. And for what? To enhance the education of America's youth? Do you really think our college graduates are better educated, more literate, more versed in classical philosophy and American history than they were 10, 20, or 50 years ago? If your child goes to college and spends four years partying, skipping class, and playing video games, consider yourself lucky. It's when they actually listen to their radical professors that you're in trouble. So, what have our institutions been doing with all this money? Well, the University of Michigan's Vice Provost of Equity and Inclusion makes $400,000 a year. The university spends close to $11 million annually on diversity and inclusion staff and programs, according to a recent report. What do you think Vice Provosts of Equity and Inclusion, and almost all schools have one now, do all day? They, and the small armies they supervise, spend all day, every day, looking for racism, sexism, classism, Islamophobia, homophobia, transphobia, and any other phobias they can dream up. If they don't find some bias somewhere, they're out of a job. So guess what? They find it, even where it doesn't exist. The University of California at Santa Cruz now has an, quote, activist in residence. His job is to mint new leftist activists, as if we have a shortage. Why are we voluntarily giving billions and billions of dollars to hopelessly corrupt institutions that overcharge, underdeliver, and undermine the most basic values of Western civilization? We should be starving this beast. Instead, we're feeding it. Are there exceptions to this rule? Colleges that are actually dedicated to the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom? Of course there are, and they are worthy of your financial support. But you can count them on two hands. The rest have a different mission, and they have more than enough coin to carry it out. The aforementioned University of Michigan has an endowment of $12 billion. But that's small potatoes compared to Yale's $30 billion, or Harvard's $40 billion. And donors keep giving them more. It's time to stop. You'd be better throwing your money into a bonfire. That's just a waste. But when you donate to your average university, you're actually hurting your society. You're the reason kids, maybe your kids, are coming home, loving socialism and hating free market capitalism, believing male and female don't objectively exist, excusing rockets being shot into Israel, then blaming Israel for defending itself, romanticizing Che Guevara and reviling George Washington, and dismissing America, arguably the most decent country ever created, as racist, genocidal, imperialist, white supremacist, hate-filled, and misogynistic. Okay. So, a lot of information to pick apart there. 
Um, I'm trying to, to interject less than I normally do. I'm really trying. Uh, but anyway, off the top of my head... Okay, so first he goes... Oh, well, you know, these, uh, these colleges... You know, that they don't teach kids uh, a sufficient amount of classical philosophy and American history. Um, but he doesn't go... Now, I get it. These videos are designed to be about five minutes each. So there's only so much um, content you can... Uh, pour into five minutes. I get it. But, Charlie, you didn't mention a single uh, example of what you're talking about. You just use these vague terms like classical philosophy and um, and American history. So, okay, so history majors don't know anything about American history. Philosophy majors don't know anything about classical philosophy. They're not taught that at these uh, these institutions. That's the implication of what you're saying. You know, that's the logical conclusion of what you're saying. Uh, now, I think that more people should be educated uh, on those topics outside of those fields of study. So... You know, I think is beneficial for, I don't know, a a pharmacy uh, major or whatever to learn about classical philosophy. And I think it would be beneficial for, um, let's say, a math major to learn about American history. You know, so let's just use that as an example. So I understand what Charlie is trying to say, but I fear what he's saying. And it's not a very, um, uh, wild leap of the imagination to, uh, to make this assertion that I'm making here. But I think what he means is the, uh, the professors at these universities are not be, are not uh, coddling the conservative versions of history and philosophy philosophy 100% in every uh, class that they teach. That's what Charlie Kirk is talking about. See, this is something that is very pervasive in conservative circles where even though they claim to be the strong ones and they claim to, oh, you know, these leftist snowflakes and blah, 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 blah. But you guys are the ones that, you know, you know and some do some people on the left uh, whine and cry about safe spaces and trigger warnings and blah, blah, blah. Although I'm not inherently opposed to trigger warnings specifically, uh, I, I wouldn't codify that into law i wouldn't mandate it but i'm not opposed to it in principle because the idea like like if if you have somebody let's say a victim of rape or sexual assault or or um let's say 
your father was just killed in Iraq. You know, well, I think it's just common courtesy and decency for a professor to say, oh, we're going to I'm going to show a video that uh, depicts a rape happening or uh, I'm going to show pictures of uh, soldiers dying in the war in Iraq. You know, so I think it's perfectly decent to uh, to have that as uh, not as a, a law, like not as a mandated thing, like you have to provide trigger warnings, but I'm not, I'm, I'm totally opposed to safe spaces, but I'm not uh, opposed to uh, trigger warnings inherently. So, but the idea here that I want to stress to you guys is these conservative pundits without even, I don't even think they honestly realize, and maybe they do, maybe they're just so dishonest and they actually do realize what they're doing, but they want a safe space. They want safe spaces and trigger warnings. And, you know, so, so basically, so with the American history thing, yes, a lot of, you know, there, there are some things that we did in the past that are good, but I would say most, if you look at objective history, most of the things that we did are pretty fucked up. You know, it's very, very horrible thing. You know, do you know how many dictators we supported do you, uh, in the past and still do? Um, how many genocides we were a part of? You know, we're, we're bombing eight or nine different countries right now. You know, so it's like, so yes, Charlie, people deserve to know about those aspects of American history. And so why would you not be in favor of that? Like, let's say you're a conservative student and you want to argue what Charlie did toward the end of the video. Like, oh, America is so so decent and so kind and oh we're so you know uh we've done more uh to help people and lift them out of poverty and you know uh free people from the you know the shackles of tyranny and communism and blah 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 like you know the usual uh conservative talking points i'm fine with hearing those uh talking points in class because i can debunk them in my sleep so why should conservative students, if their ideas are so strong, Charlie, why are you encouraging these students to go to safe spaces like private Christian universities, which this, this uh, video was sponsored by uh, toward the end, it says, or at the end, uh, Dennis Prager comes on and he's like, this video was made possible by like the Colorado Christian University or whatever the hell it is. So you want to send your kids to a safe space. You don't want ideological diversity. No, you want to be coddled, you know, just like the, the quote unquote liberal or leftist media does to conservatives all the time, all the time, which is why you have Ben Shapiro on all the time, on all the networks. I've seen him on, you know, multiple uh, networks. And it doesn't really matter what 
the opinions of the network are toward these people. They're giving them a platform uh, in which they can express their ideas. So who cares what some overpaid elitist host says to them? They're getting exposure. They're getting widespread coverage uh, on these major networks. So that's not suppressing conservative speech. That's not suppressing conservative ideas. No, they're, they're giving them a major platform. And it's why somebody like Ben Shapiro was so unprepared for Andrew Neal and the, you know, the, the, the interview on the BBC that I played for you guys. That's why he was so unprepared to deal with actual hard-hitting journalistic questions from Andrew Neal, who, by the way, I'm sure would agree with Ben Shapiro on most of the stuff that... Uh, that uh, he believes in. But because he asked Ben Shapiro hard questions, Ben Shapiro immediately started crying and bitching and moaning and his cult of fans, you know, they're probably going to say, oh, he was strong. He, he sort of destroyed the leftist and blah, 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 blah. But first of all, Andrew Neal, as he even says in the interview, Andrew Neal is not a leftist by any stretch of the imagination. He's on your side. and But because he put his own biases and di away for a second and didn't coddle you like the U.S. mainstream media does, um, he, you know, Ben Shapiro just flipped out and he didn't know how to handle it and he left the... The interview, it's like, well, what happened, Ben? You know, I thought you were in favor of, like, the, you know, marketplace of ideas. And, you know, let's just, you know, let these ideas flow and let people decide which ones are the best and blah, blah. But the second you get actual pushback from somebody, oh, this interview is a waste of time and I'm out of here and blah, 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 blah. You know, so these types of people are just so disingenuous and it really, I mean... Oh, my God. But anyway, so then uh, toward the time that I stopped the video at, which is at the 3.45 mark, and there's only like a little over a minute left to go um, in the video. So I'll get back to the video in a second. But <clears throat> sorry about that. Uh, he goes through, uh, and PragerU does this a lot, uh, where they just list certain sort of buzzwords, I guess. Uh, you know, racist, sexist, uh, imperialistic, genocidal, white supremacist, blah, 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 blah. So Charlie throws these words out there without even trying to debunk them or whatever he didn't give any analysis of you know hey i think you know america is not an imperialist country and here's x example of that he didn't do that he just lists these things and he says oh uh we're just not these things as if it's like a given no give evidence man give examples you know and i can give you many examples of how the United States is imperialistic. 
You know, look again, look what we're doing right now. Um, the, you know, we're bombing eight different countries right now. Only one of them uh, was kind of involved in uh, directly uh, aiding and abetting people who attacked us on 9-11. So in, the, in this case, that's Afghanistan. In every other instance, including Iraq, these guys didn't do anything to us. What did Niger do to us? What did Yemen do to us? You know, it's like, my God, um, what did Pakistan uh, do to us? You know, it's just insane. You know, and it's so funny how, because this is how, uh, this is like a, the, the latest uh, preview video just came out today because they come out with a new video every Monday, which is great because I can always, you know, have a good laugh every Monday. Um, but they were saying, of course, the biggest myth of all time on... Uh, conservatives and like debts and deficits um and surprise surprise it was somebody from the manhattan institute which is an insane far-right think tank you know so it's not an objective source by any means he's like oh you know the big problem in this country is the the big problem in this country is you know Social Security and Medicare spending. Yeah, right, of course. You know, the programs that actually help people, yeah, those are the ones that are causing the problem. And these are programs, especially Social Security, which, by the way, you pay into, you idiot. You pay into those programs. It doesn't add a damn thing to the deficit. Nothing. Zero. You know, it, it's not even close to a problem and social security is solvent for i think it's the next 30 years or so so just stop you know uh but his whole thing is no no don't don't cut military spending you know don't 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 do that and don't cut uh i don't think he specifically mentioned corporate welfare but you know, but still, you know, that kind of, that, that's another big expense. You know, don't, don't cut military expenditures. Don't cut corporate welfare, you know, cut the programs that actually help people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you is so funny, man. So funny. Uh, but the last thing I want to say before I finish this video is, um, there is one point that I actually agree with Charlie Kirk on and that is the like the offices of diversity equity inclusion whatever it is I don't think that they should be receiving that much funding and hiring that many staff I mean that's totally unnecessary I I'm hesitant to say don't have those offices at all because I want, you know, um, I, I, I like the fact that that universities are saying now 
to let's say if you're I don't know a, a, a trans person or a non-binary uh, person somebody that identifies as you know gender fluid or whatever let's say you're you're that person then you know I think it's somewhat reasonable to to have uh, somewhere uh, where they can go to feel more comfortable and that might seem like a contradiction because you oh Jordan aren't you against safe spaces yes I am but this is not about a safe space this is more uh, a helpful space you know I, I, I want you know there to be a place where those people that are let's say having trouble adjusting to uh, to college life I, w- I want you know trans kids and uh gay and lesbian kids and and and, you know international students you know i i want them to have some place to go to where uh they can say hey you know uh where you know they'll have somebody says hey you know what can we do to make you feel uh more at home on this campus now I get it, and I agree with Charlie Kirk that it, that it, that is kind of a slippery slope, uh, because then you say, "Oh, so and so was uh, was bigoted toward me," or "So and so, you know, uh, student or professor is a racist," or blah blah blah. You know, so you do have those uh, sort of boy who cried wolf moments, and that's unfortunate, but. There has to be a way to improve these offices, downsize them certainly. So I'm, I'm, you know, largely uh, conceding Charlie Kirk's point here uh, because fair is fair. I'm not going to disagree with him on something just because he's Charlie Kirk and I disagree with at least 90% of everything that he's ever said that I've ever heard him say. So I get it, you know, so, so I... I I don't think that colleges should pour a significant amount of resources to these particular offices, but I do support uh, their right to exist uh, in some form so that students who are um, sort of outside the norms of society in turn you know so again whether you're lgbtq or uh non-binary or you're from another country or whatever i think that these offices should be in place uh or 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 a similar idea uh should be in place to to help these students along and uh not just to just not to be used as there's got to be a system in place where these systems cannot be used to say oh this person's a racist this person's a you know unless there's irrefutable proof and uh so, so that's where i stand on the whole offices of diversity equity inclusion thing so i'm kind of so so i'm in sort of the middle of it i don't say um oh yes these Offices are so great and so wonderful, so let's keep pouring, you know, gobs and gobs of money 
uh, into them. But I also don't, you know, don't imply what Charlie Kirk is implying here, which is, oh, these these uh, offices are so terrible, and let's get rid of them. You know, um, no, I, I I think that they have uh, a place, and I think that they are being misused in certain instances but we just have to change how these offices function a little bit like do little tweaks to make sure that that doesn't happen nearly as often ideally doesn't happen at all so anyway uh let's get back to the video here come on being fed a steady diet of this nihilism in grade school, middle school, and high school. But they have to come home for dinner every night. College is where the leftist deal is sealed. They're free of your influence and under the sway of their leftist professors and leftist peers. Okay. So that actually brings up uh, a good point because there were a couple of points that I forgot to uh, bring up that Charlie Kirk raised. So he's like, hey, you know, if, if you send your kids to college, they're going to come home uh, loving socialism and hating Israel and, and uh, you know, idolizing Che Guevara and, uh, and disparaging George Washington and blah, blah, blah. But okay, tr- Charlie, calm down for a second. Since uh, you're kind of making uh, sort of glib assertions based on, I guess, you know, maybe a couple anecdotal, uh, like you said, Michigan, uh, Harvard, you know. So um, so since you're using anecdotes, I'll use one. Um, so you say these... Uh, these colleges are teaching kids to embrace socialism. Okay, if you take, let's say, and I don't know what department this would be in, maybe it would be in poli-sci, maybe it would be in economics, I don't know. If you take, let's say, a class on Marxism, like uh, Professor Richard Wolff, he's uh, a Marxist economist, but how many Marxist economists, first of all, are there generally and how many of them teach at universities not that many you know it's like there's not you know so and th- this is the the point that i want to make i was a political science major and all the classes i took were from a neoliberal perspective they were from the sort of Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama type of viewpoint, which is basically that uh, capitalism is great and uh, the system we have right now uh, is great, doesn't really need to be, uh, doesn't really need to be tweaked. Um, So... You know, largely free market capitalism, even though there's really no such thing. But, you know, it, it is still largely like this laissez-faire 
kind of uh, capitalist uh, economy that we have mixed in with some social, uh, with a little bit of social democracy uh, in, in the, uh, in that we have welfare programs. So that's basically what the discussion in, in my classes, at least, uh, was framed from. It was framed from a very sort of milquetoast neoliberal perspective. Uh, it wasn't, you know, this extremely left, you know, uh, uh, the, you know, this extremely left uh, viewpoint. It, that's not at all. You know, I never heard my uh, professors go over... Now, maybe it depends on what classes you take. And um, I'm not denying that there, there probably are some that are more left-leaning than others uh, at my particular university, but all I got was neoliberal stuff. You know, that's, that's really all I was exposed to. Um, but none of my uh, professors, none of them taught us about Anarcho-syndicalism, for instance. None of them talked about labor movements. None of them talked about uh, worker cooperatives. Nothing, no, none of them taught us about workers' councils. None of them uh, went over examples of sort of anarchist societies like Catalonia in 1936 to 39, the Free Territory of Ukraine, the Paris Commune, uh, the Zapatista movement in Chiapas in Mexico, which is still going on today, still exists today. So we, we didn't hear about any of those, uh, those examples of anarchist societies. We didn't hear about uh, Mikhail Bakunin. We didn't hear about Peter Kropotkin. We weren't taught about Murray Bookchin. We weren't taught about um, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. We, we weren't taught those things. You know, those things were not even close to on the table. What you got was the, the mainstream, you know, e economic thinkers, you know. So basically, you had... Like in this one class I took called International Political Economy, uh, you had mercantilism, capitalism, or uh, lib sorry, uh, liberalism in, in the economic sense. So capitalism, you know, and uh, Adam Smith, uh, or at least the uh, sort of academic version of Adam Smith. Uh, and then you had Marxism. Now... I think my professor did a, a somewhat, uh, you know, uh, my professor did a pretty good job at defining and explaining the key tenets of Marxism. You know, she she did a pretty good job, and you know, with the other the, the other stuff as well. But 
you know, we never went into the nuances of of right wing or, or sorry of, of left wing uh, economic thought. We we didn't go into. We just focused on on Marxism. We didn't talk about market socialism. We didn't talk about anarchism. We didn't talk about any of that stuff. You know that that stuff wasn't uh, gone over in any way, shape, or form. So, it's just weird to me that conservatives have this viewpoint that, oh, you know, these these colleges, these uh, higher education uh, institutions are so biased in favor of the left. It's like, uh, not really. They are to the left of the modern-day Republican Party. But, again, that doesn't mean they are objectively on the left. You know, so so there's a difference there. So, and then with the, the Israel criticism, okay, maybe you can cherry-pick examples of certain professors taking it too far uh, and... Saying, oh, you know, Israel, I don't think it has the right to defend itself. Maybe you could cherry pick some examples of that. I don't know. I was certainly, because I took a class on the history of the Middle East in the 20th century. Uh, my first semester at Binghamton University, which I just graduated from. Uh, and he, the, the professor there, was very clear. Very clear. He's like, you know what? Because uh, we went over the beginnings of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And he's like, hey guys, you know what? Uh, I'm just here to give you the objective facts and it is objective to say that both sides, Israel and Palestine, have done stupid things in the past and have done horrific things uh, in the past. So uh, that's an example right there of of the uh, of a sort of debunking of Charlie Kirk's point there that there are professors that can be uh, objective and say, hey, you know, they they've both done stupid things, um, but again, Charlie didn't give any specific examples, but. My guess is that he's strawmanning, and here's my guess at what the actual position of uh, of some of these professors that he's uh, trying to paint as oh you know so anti-Israel. I think you know you know what I think that these professors are actually saying. I would bet you any amount of money that this is what they're actually saying. Hey, uh, Israel. Stop uh, with the disproportionate responses to Hamas attacks uh, and stop killing innocent civilians and sacrificing innocent civilians uh, in order to try to get back at Hamas for doing stupid things to you. So it's the proportionality of the response that I have an issue with and a lot of people have an issue with. It's basically the it's basically 
oh, well, Hamas uh, disregarded our civ- civilians when they fired uh, rockets into our territory. So, huh, fuck it. We're, uh, we're just going to disregard uh, civilian casualties uh, and send the IDF out there and use Iron Dome. And, you know, we're not going to bat an eye at, at slaughtering innocent Palestinian civilians. But when they do it to us, it's bad. You know, but when we do it, oops, sorry, you know, it was an accident, you know. So, and don't get me wrong, both of those are bad. I'm not in favor of the slaughtering of Israeli civilians, okay? I'm not. You know, but I'm also not in favor of the slaughtering of Palestinian civilians. And only one side has significant international backing from the most powerful country on earth, the United States. And that is Israel. Israel has that. Palestine doesn't have that. And the UN won't even recognize Palestine as a legitimate state. If Palestinians want to get anything done on the international stage, they have to go through other countries like Jordan uh, and uh, try to at least get some semblance of uh, their voices heard. So that's the reality of the situation, Charlie. Now, again, I'm sure you can point to a couple examples where professors say, hey, you know, I don't think Israel... uh, should defend itself at all. But first of all, I think that's very few. And I think that uh, most professors have my view, which I just laid out for you, that, hey, you know, of course Israel has a right to exist. Of course Israel has the right to defend itself from uh, attacks. But what they don't have a right to do is obliterate Palestine and slaughter innocent civilians in the name of trying to prove how much better they are than Palestine. Like, oh, we're so much better than Palestine. We're, you know, only democracy in the Middle East and blah, 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 blah. First of all, none of those things are true that I just said. None of those things are true. Um, Israel is more democratic than most countries in the Middle East, but that's a pretty low bar to begin with. So you're not going to get a lot of praise from me, especially under the Netanyahu uh, regime. You know, it's really, really corrupt. And again, as I've said before, even Netanyahu's own police forces and security forces recommend indicting him on corruption charges, but they're too cowardly to do it. So... Anyway, let's get through the last minute here. Stop supporting institutions that don't support your values, that, in fact, despise your values. And believe me, they despise you when your back is turned. The only thing they love about you is your money. Oh, you might say, I would never give money for all that diversity, equity, and inclusion nonsense. I designate my donations to the business school or the medical center. If you think that, you're fooling yourself. Money is fungible. You can designate it for anything you want, but you can't control what the university does with it. I travel around the country every week trying to rescue kids from the leftist cult that is college. 
It's bad enough that I have to battle administrators, professors, and leftist student body. I shouldn't have to fight you, too. College has become a big business. Most indoctrinate rather than educate. The best way to force them to change is to take away their cash. Your cash. Start today. I'm Charlie Kirk, founder and president of Turning Point USA for Prager University. Okay. <clears throat> so it's just that, that that's just such a weird Charlie's just a weird guy, man. Oh my god. So okay, first of all, yes, some of the students protest you coming on college campuses to speak but number one they should be allowed to do that as long as they're not violent if it descends into violence i'm not in favor of that and almost nobody no matter what side of politics you're on is in favor of that so you know you so i understand that charlie but here's the thing when you say that colleges don't let you speak, that's not true. You know, a lot of colleges let you speak. Uh, they're, they're, you know, you... Uh, I've seen talks from you at various universities. There are some that have banned you, and that's, that's ridiculous. That's deplorable. I, I hate that. But... Um, it's not like you can't speak anywhere on any college campus, you know, and if they don't want you to speak on college uh, campuses, again, I'm, I'm not in favor of it, but the, uh, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the, the rationale for that is probably because, well, he probably doesn't really have much to say like th that would contribute to a constructive conversation or dialogue because, you know, Charlie Kirk is just a glorified right-wing welfare queen. That's what he, he gets paid by right-wing think tanks uh, and, and by Foster Freeze, who's a fracking guy. Um, he gets paid by these people to go out and spew these ridiculous talking points uh, and, and it's just insane. I think he should, again, I want to stress this. I think he should be allowed to speak at any uh, university or college campus that he uh, so desires to go on. Uh, because I want people to hear uh, his ideas, quote unquote, and how ridiculous they are. Um, so I'm not uh, in favor of censoring him, but... There are probably some colleges that that think, oh, this guy is not, this guy is very disingenuous and he doesn't really have a lot to contribute to, uh, to a constructive discussion and dialogue uh, and political discourse, you know. So, so that's probably where some of these institutions are coming from and it's, it's not 
I, I, I'm hesitant to say that it's purely just, oh, you know, these people in the leftist cult, you know, they, they just want to censor uh, conservatives and blah, blah, blah. Ironically, they're... Uh, ironically, um, they... The... the uh, the, the conservatives, like Charlie Kirk, they're like, oh, we need to educate kids. But you're not providing them with education, Charlie. You're not. You're not. You're not educating them about anything. You're just spewing propaganda talking points as you claim it's the left that's doing that. In some cases, these, you know, these social justice warrior types... Um, Sometimes they can take things a little too far. I get that. But you want to uh, shape everybody to agree with your worldview. And you are the one that wants to be coddled. Or coddled. You're the one that wants to save space. You're the one that uh, is... You're the one that desires... A lot of the things that you're saying that, quote unquote, the left wants uh, in this video here. So give it a rest, Charlie. I mean, you're just a sad, sad human being. So that takes care of that video. <clears throat> now. Now. Let's listen to my good friend, my good buddy, Ben Shapiro, um, and he's going to talk about um, Stephen Colbert and just go on this weird rant about how somehow you can be a comedian who happens to be a Democrat, but you can't be a Democrat who's a comedian. I, I, I don't really understand the dichotomy there, or what, what he's trying to say, but let's hear him out and then uh, laugh later. So anyway, here's um, Ben Shapiro ranting about how, quote-unquote, far-left Stephen Colbert is. Let me just let me just pause there for a second, uh, for effect. Just take in how ridiculous that is, especially uh, the anarchists and socialists uh, in my very small but uh, very devoted audience. Let's take that in for a second. Stephen Colbert. Stephen Colbert is far left, according to Ben Shapiro. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, take it away, Mr. Shapiro. Or we can listen to another ad. Okay, these ads are annoying. There. Stephen Colbert does this interview with the New York Times. It is incredibly fawning, as most of these interviews are. And here's what he says. He's asked, is President Trump good for comedy? How do you come up with a fresh joke about him? And Colbert says, I make no claim that we do. Sometimes it's the same joke. Now, this is normally where you would stop and say, then 
you're not doing your job, right? I mean, like you're a comedian when you have to make different jokes. You know, half of humor is the element of surprise. No, you can keep making the same joke about Trump and your leftist audience will eat it up. Dana, and it's not even a callback joke. Like when I do my Chris Matthews voice, it basically is a callback joke because it's inherently funny because it's, it's kind of a mediocre impersonation, but it's got sort of the, the cadence down. But it's a callback joke mostly. Like the, half of the funniness is the familiarity of it. That's not the case with the punchlines that he tells about Trump. He says, sometimes there's still meat left on that chicken. Trump consumes the news cycle and our mandate, says Stephen Colbert, as we've established for ourselves, is that I want to inform the audience of my opinion about what they've been thinking about all day. So if the news has been orange Thanos, then I'm not gonna change that. I'm gonna do my best to stand in the teeth of that particular bleep hurricane and make jokes about how we're all being lied to. For my own heart's ease, I'm not gonna pretend that Trump is not lying to me. The alternative is to stick your head in the sand. Oh, what a truth teller he is. This is the same guy who spent his years on, on the Colbert Report, mocking Bill O'Reilly and smooching Barack Obama's posterior, but what a truth teller he is. Now, listen, I, I do appreciate that Stephen Colbert is basically now just saying, look, I'm a leftist, I'm gonna make leftist jokes. All right, that at least is fair, but it is worth noting that when a lot of these comedians do the clown nose on, clown nose off routine, where it's like, well, I make a joke about Trump because I'm a comedian, I make jokes about everybody. And then the minute they talk politics, I'm sincere. I'm sincerely a Democrat on the left. I'm a sincere, sincere person. Pick one or pick the other. If you're a Democrat who makes jokes or you're a joker who happens to be a Democrat, but you can't be both. And people like Stephen Colbert want to pretend they're both, they really are not. The New York Times says, that thing about not wanting to let Trump get away with a lie, is it fair to say you feel a moral imperative behind your work? Wow, look at those hard-hitting questions from the New York Times. Well, when you make jokes about politicians, there's what they say and what they do. It's, it's hard to make jokes about someone who says something and then kind of does it. But with a guy who points east with his words and west with his action, that's where all the jokes live. Now, what are the things he's lying about? If the things he's lying about have a moral component, your jokes will have a moral component. In other words, you don't choose the flavor. The flavor is chosen by politics itself. And then the New York Times asks a more important question. They say, there's a sort of general answer about the default moral nature of political satire. I was asking more specifically about whether or not you personally feel any sense of moral obligation about your work. He says, no. Okay, that's obviously a lie. He obviously does feel a moral sense of obligation. He has just said in his past two answers that he feels a sense that he has to speak truth to orange Thanos or he can't sleep at night. But now he's going to tell you about his high-minded comedying. This is what I mean by the clown is on clown is off routine. He says, I mean, I have morality. I suppose it's rated to my Catholicity. You mean Catholicism? He says, I was raised in a devout Catholic home and bottle-fed Robert Bolt's A Man for All Seasons, which is about how it's important that you not let the tide of history sweep you along if you don't actually agree with it. And William Buckley said he stands athwart history yelling stop. I think we with the show stand athwart history and say, that's dumb. What a little bleep that is. Is that moral? I don't know. I know that public lies that you are impelled to believe are worse than private ones, but I'm not Aaron Brockovich. I'm sure as hell not Howard Beale. A fair amount of the time I'm making poop jokes. Matter of fact, John Stewart, when it looked like the Colbert Report had come out of the box fully assembled and was going to happen, he said to me, when your children go up to get their diplomas at whatever college they end up going you, going to, I want you to whisper to yourself quietly as they get the sheepskin, I paid for some of this with poop jokes. Wow, again, this is the part that drives people on the right up a wall, up a wall. Just say what you mean, dude. You're a far lefty and you like making jokes about Trump and you feel a moral sense that you have to make jokes about Trump. Don't tell us it's all about the poop jokes. It isn't about the poop jokes. The poop jokes are a way for you to make money off of hating President Trump, off of hating Republicans and conservatives. And that's why your poop jokes don't land most of the time. Colbert has become a less funny human being since he decided he was a political partisan. The fact is, you can... Okay. So... <clears throat> okay. 
it is mind-boggling to me how anybody can see Stephen Colbert as a quote-unquote far lefty. Ben, he doesn't talk about anarchism on his show. I'm going back to the same examples, but this this is but that's what far left is. Far left means anarchism, um socialism. That that's what that means. Stephen Colbert doesn't want any of that. He's not a far lefty because he disagrees with you sometimes. And it's not like he has zero Republicans on his show. He has them on a lot. You know, I, I don't watch Stephen Colbert because I don't necessarily like him. I liked him on the Colbert Report. I did. Um, I, I didn't watch him um, incessantly, but... You know, I, I would watch him occasionally with uh, with my parents. And, and here's the thing. They, uh, uh, what was I going to say? I can't remember. But anyway, um, Stephen Colbert is not a far lefty because he mocks Donald Trump. He mocks Donald Trump because Donald Trump is the president. And that's what late night hosts do. They mock the president. And there's this myth of, oh, um, the, you know, Barack Obama was never made fun of when he was in office. It's true he was made fun of to a lesser extent, but that's because Obama was not a moron. Trump says demonstrably untrue things all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and he's an idiot while saying them most of the time. That is why they're making fun of him. They're not making fun of him, I think, for political reasons, they're making fun of him because he's an idiot. You know, and Barack Obama, agree with him or disagree with him, he was not an idiot. You know, he, he was actually uh, a pretty smart guy. He could, you know, some of his policies uh, showed him to actually be quite incompetent at, uh, at certain points in his presidency, but as far as being unintelligent, that is not a word that I believe can be used to describe Barack Obama. So that's why he's making fun of Trump. You think that he's making fun of Trump because he's like somehow this like, oh, far left uh, socialist or whatever. No, Stephen Colbert probably loves Trump's tax cuts because they benefit him. Uh, he probably loves um, the fact that, and I don't know, I shouldn't make this assertion, but my guess is he's not totally opposed to eight different wars going on right now. You know, at the very least, he's not saying anything about them. So, Ben, 
you just come across as a whiner when you do this. Like, oh, you know, um... And then he's like, well, you know, if you make the same jokes, it's not funny anymore. True, but would you hold the same standard if a right-wing... Uh, Ekin, uh, right-wing late-night host was, you know, constantly making jokes about Barack Obama or, let's say, I don't know, Jimmy Carter. You know, like, would you call that out or would you just laugh the whole time? I think you would laugh the whole time. Um, so, and and to be fair... Yes, Stephen Colbert is not that funny, especially uh, since he has become more of a partisan hack, but he's a very establishment-leaning Democrat. You should love him, Ben Shapiro. You are the most establishment person on the face of the earth, you know? You should love Stephen Colbert. Yes, you guys have your differences, but you also have incredible similarities. You know, it just so happens that Stephen Colbert, whether you want to admit it or not, is slightly more funny and more factual, fact-based, than you are. You know, so that's the reality of the situation, Ben. And again, it doesn't make him a far lefty that he again, doesn't coddle conservatives all the time. That doesn't make him a far lefty. That makes him Stephen Colbert, you know? And save, you know, spare me the, oh, Stephen Colbert has a leftist audience. What? Are you kidding me? You know, these people that are in his audience, they love Hillary Clinton. They love um, people like um, yeah, yeah, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, um, who else has he had on? I think, to be fair, Stephen Colbert has on, has had on Bernie Sanders, but if he and his audience were really leftists, he would have on guests like Tulsi Gabbard, Bernie Sanders, uh, Mike Grovel, um, and even somebody, he's not, you know, he, he's kind of an oddball politically, but he does get much less coverage than I feel he deserves. Andrew Yang, where are their segments, you know, on uh, on Stephen Colbert's show? Where are they, you know? It's like, in most cases, those people do not get coverage uh, on his show, and specifically with Grovel and Sanders and, to an extent, Tulsi Gabbard, these are the furthest left people we have that are running for president. So, Ben, again, it's, it's conflating slight disagreement with sort of a, a radical break from orthodoxy in terms of you know just the conservative orthodoxy like anything like if you are not in lockstep with at least 80 to 85 probably more like 90 percent of republican orthodoxy you're smeared as just some sort of you know fervent 
unrepentant leftist. It's like, no, you know, that's not, that's not how politics works. That's not how this works, man. So I don't know. Anyway, let's uh, <clears throat> finish the uh, video here. It only has about a minute to go. And by the way, sorry, one more thing. Uh, the only reason why right-wingers are driven crazy uh, or driven up a wall, as Ben Shapiro said, is because their, ide their ideas can't compete with Stephen Colbert, which is pretty sad because, again, I could dismantle a lot of Stephen Colbert's establishment-leaning ideas. Uh, so I don't watch him, but I'm sure if I did, I would find, first of all, a lot of issues that we disagree on, but I wouldn't run away like a scared little bitch because I would hear things that I disagree with. No, I would hear him out and then I would say, oh, he's wrong about this, 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 and this, you know? And so apparently a lot of conservatives can't do that, which is really sad because again, it's very easy to dismantle establishment talking points. And apparently a lot of your audience, Ben, uh, apparently they don't, they can't do that and you can't do that either because you're an establishment hack, you know, as you accuse rightly of, you know, as you accuse Stephen Colbert of being a hack and, but you are too. So, you know, get your own house in order first, buddy. Can be a political commentator with some humor. I think that's what this show is. Or you can be a comedian who does some politics. That's theoretically what Colbert's show is. But his show is probably closer to mine now. And I haven't changed my show one iota since the very first day we started doing it. That says something about why people are not as interested in late night TV generally, at least on the right. He says, for example, the, the New York Times asked Colbert, the other day your monologue was about the de facto Alabama abortion ban. He said, yeah, I'd avoided making jokes about it because you just can't win making jokes about abortion. Half of the people are just going to be mad at you. But Alabama was an unavoidable one. The reason we did it was because that was about, I thought, a very cynical, purposeful overreach. Even the people who are writing the law said they don't want that law. He's going to have to cite some sources on the people who wrote that law don't want the law. I've talked to the people who wrote the law. They want the law. And so, in other words, again, he says, oh, no, you know, I wasn't going to... You're going to piss off, but Alabama, that's when I had to make my stand. Pick a lane. Pick a lane. Either, if you're Chris Matthews, pick a lane. Are you a journalist or are you a Democratic hack? If you're Stephen Colbert, are you a comedian or are you a leftist hack? Which one is it going to be? And you can say you're a comedian with left leanings. I'm okay with that. But that means occasionally you're going to have to tell jokes about people with whom you agree politically. It's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, no wonder people don't trust the media. Okay, so that's it for that interesting video from Shapiro. And I just find it weird, again, like, he acts like true leftists, like me and my friends. He acts like Stephen Colbert is where we get our news from. No, we don't. We don't give a shit about Stephen Colbert. You know? 
we don't care about Stephen Colbert at all. You know, I'd rather listen to Noam Chomsky or Michael Brooks or even somebody who's less left like Kyle Kalinske. You know, I'd I'd rather listen to those people than Stephen fucking Colbert, who, again, is a very establishment-leaning uh, person. We don't, again, we just don't care about what we have to, what he has to. Sorry about that. What he has to say. So that's another ridiculous talking point. And then, so he, again, he sets up this dichotomy where it's like, well, uh, you can be a... Uh, a comedian and a leftist, but you can't be a leftist and a comedian, basically, is, is his point. But again, would you say that about right-leaning comedians? Would you say that, for instance, about Steven Crowder? Would you say that about him? He does a lot of political commentary, um, and he also is a, albeit unfunny and unappealing, uh, comedian. So, are you going to go after him, Ben? Are you going to go after uh, Steven Crowder? Oh, right, you agree with him all the time, so you're not going to go after him. That's right, I, that's right. I understand how this works. So, because you don't agree with Stephen Colbert all the time, uh, you're going to go after him. But, you know, God forbid, God forbid you after actually go after people that you agree with. As you're berating Stephen Colbert for not making fun of people that he agrees with, which I'm sure he's done, you know. Maybe not all that often, but I'm sure he's done it. Excuse me. Uh, but. Well, you're, but, you know, as you're accusing Stephen Colbert of, oh, he doesn't make fun of people he, he, he agrees with and he's a leftist hack and blah, 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 blah. You don't criticize or make fun of right-leaning people you disagree with other than maybe Alex Jones occasionally. And number two, you are a right-wing establishment hack. You know, that's what you are, Ben Shapiro. So I think it's just the, the, the disingenuousness of Ben Shapiro is what is what gets to me the most, other than people thinking he's some genius and a and a uh an expert uh on debating the left and blah 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 he's not any of those things yes he's somewhat smart granted okay i've said that before again getting into ucla at 14 that's pretty damn impressive okay but that doesn't mean that you have credibility on 
political issues. That that's that, that's not those things. They they can be true at the same time, but they're not necessarily uh, true all the time. So uh, Ben Shapiro is not an intellectual he's not a uh, as the i think it was the new york times called him like ooh he's the cool kids philosopher he's not a philosopher no he's a loudmouth fast talking bully and an establishment prick that's what he is so anyway uh have some good uh quick stories to go through here uh, and once again, I, I, I like what I do now, which is I, I summarize the articles for you rather than reading the whole thing. So they, uh, the, the WSWS, uh, surprise, surprise, <laughs> has a story from about a week ago. And it says... Unions Sabotaging South Korean Shipbuilding Workers' Strike. And this is by Ben McGrath. So basically it talks about how there's these two large shipbuilding companies uh, in South Korea. And basically uh, the, the protest is for... Uh, these two companies um, merging, that they're, they're trying to merge and the workers are not happy about that. And due to pressure from the media and uh, I guess th their own political gain, these companies have been begging the Korean Metal Workers Union to shut down uh, this protest uh, the these series of protests and now the uh, uh, there the companies are goading the South Korean police into cracking down violently on the people who are going on strike now so uh the first strike was last monday so uh, yeah, the last strike was a week ago. It says uh, it was a seven-hour walkout uh, the next day, Tuesday. Oh no! So this this was this hap this started two weeks ago. So two Mondays ago started the full strike, and then on Tuesday there was a seven-hour uh, walkout, and then uh, they stopped working for four hours on Wednesday. And it says that the Korean Metal Workers Union is allowing workers to, quote, vent their anger, but they're preventing the movement from spreading, basically. So, basically, the merger, the, the reason why these workers are upset at the prospect of a merger is because they fear and it's probably justified that it will lead to job cuts so 
so and then it talks about how there's a right-wing newspaper in South Korea that is basically painting the police as uh, who are trying to quash the protests it's the, the this outlet is trying to paint the police as the victims you know uh and basically you know saying like oh you know the the the, uh, the, the strikers are the ones that are uh being violent and we're just uh defending ourselves yeah i'm sure So basically, uh, there's this trend in South Korea, which uh, it kind of started uh, in the 90s, and it's sort of resurfacing again, where the elites in South Korea uh, are basically begging the government to uh, lax uh, uh, to, to impose lax uh, wage laws and job security laws and uh, it's all in the name of quote unquote harming competition and competitiveness so this is just absolutely unconscionable and are the unions doing much no because the unions uh they're the unions are actually uh in south korea in south korea at least the specific ones that they they're referring to here are actually for-profit institutions or at least they support uh, the system of for-profit commerce. So, oh, I see. And then the uh, the the last part of this is the the the, the Korean Metal Workers Union. Um, went to the press and told uh, the world that, oh, uh, we're trying to help expand uh, this movement. We're not trying to impede it. Uh, and apparently that is bullshit. Bullshit. And um, they're not trying to uh, expand the struggle. They're uh, impeding uh, workers' rights and actual socialist policies. So, anyway, let's continue. Uh, speaking of strikes, there is uh, another... This is from four days ago. The article was, anyway. Um, it says... Th this is by Rafael Azul. 
And uh, it says, Wildcat strike by Salinas, California food processing workers. There we go. Um, so basically, there's this company called The Fresh Express. And they have a plant in Salinas, California. And uh, they did what's... Um, <clears throat> what's called a wildcat strike. And for those that don't know what a wildcat strike is, is it is a work stoppage that occurs during the term uh, of a collective bargaining agreement without approval of union leadership and in violation of a no-strike clause. And that is from uslegal.com. So in the U.S., that's what that means. Um, And it and it says in the article that they did ha they do have a, a a no strike clause. And it basically says that one of the reasons why uh, they're protesting is first of all unsanitary conditions uh old and outdated machinery that's very dangerous to, to handle and uh the cutting of wages and the fact that even though this is an agricultural company and can you know turn huge profits the workers aren't seeing any benefit from that they're not seeing that wealth uh, trickling down, to borrow a phrase. They're not seeing any of that wealth trickling down to them. So, and it says that um, in Monterey County, which is where Salinas is, uh, it is the third highest grossing agricultural producing county uh, in the entire United States. And, uh, yeah, here again, low wages. Uh, they live in places like trailer parks, substandard housing. Um, and it, it's, and this is the heartbreaking part. This is toward the end. Uh, this is the heartbreaking part. It says that more than one out of every three children in the Salinas City Elementary School District is technically homeless, lacking even a postal address. That's so sad. You know, we're, we're America, and we, we claim to be the largest economy in the world, 
And we can't do anything about that. We can't do anything about homeless kids. Like, what the fuck are we doing? What's going on? You know, what What are we doing? Um, so, so some of the... Uh, workers have gotten uh, wage increases, but it still isn't quite enough. And, and some of the workers that are going on strike are risking getting fired, uh, obviously, uh, for like breach of contract reasons. So, and then it says um, that Salinas in particular has had a long history of labor movements Um And it started with, uh, unfortunately, uh, immigrants from the Philippines and Mexico. Uh, the workers were protesting uh, the employment of these people. Now, I understand uh, where those people are coming from because, you know, I don't think that it's right for an American company to outsource their jobs basically to the Philippines and Mexico and, and, and immigrants from those countries when we do have uh, perfectly capable uh, workers here. However, the immigrants from uh, the Philippines and Mexico are just as deserving of a job as everyone else. So it's kind of a sticky situation. So, uh, but that's where the origin, th th that's where this, this uh, history of labor movements in Salinas, California started. Um, and now they just want higher wages and better working conditions. So... Anyway, let's go to the final WSWS story, which is a mistrial in case against no more deaths volunteer charged with aiding immigrants. So speaking of immigration, and this is by Minakashi Yagidson, Yagadison. So I apologize for butchering that. But uh, anyway, so I actually heard about this guy before. Uh, there's a guy, he's a professor of geography at Arizona State. And uh, his name is Scott Warren. And basically what he does is he volunteer voluntarily... Uh, gives illegal immigrants food, water, and shelter. And uh, he was indicted by a grand jury. I mean, good God. Uh, so his bullshit charges are conspiracy to transport uh, illegal immigrants and 
two charges of harboring illegal immigrants, which in total may get him up to 20 years in prison. 20 years in prison for just being a decent human being. I mean, what? What? And uh, it mentions that that yes, this this type of stuff, the humanitarian aid uh, to illegal immigrants, the the Trump administration has started to crack down uh, more harshly on that. It's just good God. And uh, there's another example. Uh, uh, there's another guy in this by the name of uh, by the name of Irino Mujica, and he's a uh, dual citizen of the U.S. and Mexico, and he's been arrested uh, for helping. Uh, these guys too. This is insane. Uh, let's see. Um, the jury was deadlocked, and the judge uh, uh, deadlocked uh, the or sorry, the judge uh, mis declared a mistrial uh, for this. And he basically said, and Warren was asked by the press that, you know, he was like, how, uh, the, uh, the press was like, how do you feel about this? And he said, look, man, uh, it's obvious that the, uh, quote, the government's plan is uh, basically policies to target uh, undocumented people, refugees and their families, prosecutions to criminalize humanitarian aid and kindness and solidarity. It remains necessary as ever for local residents and humanitarian aid volunteers to stand in solidarity with migrants and refugees. And it says that he actually is not out of the woods yet, uh, this Warren guy. Uh, he has a hearing scheduled for July 2nd to uh, determine, it says, quote, the status of the case. And they don't know if uh, the defense is going to, or the, uh, uh, they don't know if the prosecutors are going to uh, call for a retrial. Uh, and then Mujica was arrested uh, in Mexico. And they're doing, you know, similar things uh, in Europe now with the rise of these quote-unquote right-wing populist parties 
and some of them have control now and you know they're they're doing similar policies in Europe it's like damn it guys these are human beings you know and many of them are asylum seekers and we have a process in place where people can go seek asylum and and go through this process and be vetted uh you know this is this is how it works you can't just turn these people away you know like and i get the argument i understand you know like, oh you know how do we know if we if they're good or bad or blah 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 but guys first of all we have vetting systems in place that can tell that and second of all i don't think if i was I mean, sorry. Second of all, the other talking point is illegal immigrants uh, take all of our benefits. No, they don't. Illegal immigrants cannot get welfare because they're illegal. You have to have certain identification and uh, status to, to qualify for the vast, vast, vast majority of welfare programs. And illegal immigrants don't have that. So... It's just unbelievable. So, and then you're going to punish people for volunteering to help these people out? What is that? So, you get punished if you're a citizen in good faith in this country who sees these poor, desperate people and tries to help them out. You get punished for that. It's like, what are we doing? You know, what... Our immigration policy is just so insane. And as I've said a million times, yes, I am for borders. As long as the state exists, I am for some type of border. But eventually, I would like to see us get beyond... Uh, needing or whatever or desiring borders so anyway last story of uh, of the day is from the new york times and it says <clears throat> flint water prosecutors drop criminal charges with plans to keep investigating so this is by mitchell smith and this is from june 13th says prosecutors stunned the city of Flint, Michigan on Thursday by dropping all pending charges against officials accused of ruining the community's drinking water and ignoring signs of a crisis, casting doubt on what some residents had seen as a small but tangible step toward justice. Fifteen state and local officials, including emergency managers who ran the city, and a, a member of the governor's cabinet have been accused by state prosecutors of crimes as serious as involuntary manslaughter. Seven had already taken plea deals. Eight more, including most of the highest-ranking officials, surprise, surprise, were awaiting trial. On Thursday, more than three years after the first charges were filed, the Michigan Attorney General's Office which earlier this year 
passed from Republican to Democratic hands, abruptly dropped the eight remaining cases. Prosecutors left open the possibility of recharging some of the those same people and perhaps others too. But in Flint, a city where faith in government was already low and where many residents still refused to drink the tap water, the news was seen by some as a sign that they had been wronged once again. This is not justice, said Melissa Mays, a Flint resident and advocate for safe drinking water. It just seems like a political ploy. She added, the only thing it tells me is that our lives don't matter. Flint's water crisis, which started in 2014, was a failure of government at all levels. A state-appointed emergency manager switched the city's drinking water source from Detroit's municipal water system to the Flint River in an effort to save money. Local officials failed to implement corrosion controls, allowing lead from uh, 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 allowing lead to leach from pipes. Health agencies assured residents that the water uh, was safe, even as people complained that it smelled bad, tasted funny, and was discolored. So that's uh, a brilliant. Uh, Brilliant job uh, in Flint, Michigan. Brilliant job. Uh, so this is what happens uh, when you're in these positions of power is... See, when you're at your job, when you screw up, when you do something wrong, you risk termination. You risk losing your job. But when you're in a position of power in the government, no matter if it's state, local, or federal, not only do you not get punished most of the time, sometimes you do, but uh, you at least have hope that, and this is what happened here, that the charges will actually be dropped against you, and effectively, you'll be rewarded for your screw-ups and you know th th this flint issue is infuriating to me and i actually donated some of my own money uh to help the people uh of flint uh sort of heal their uh, and sort of ameliorate the 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 water crisis uh in their city because I think it's very unfortunate because, again, as I've said many times on uh, this show, people deserve to have their basic needs met, ideally, uh, and in my sort of ideal system, without a price tag. So food, water, shelter, health care, you know, uh, maybe even clothing, you know, that that is also something that... Uh, should be added in there these things are vital to survival and when the supplies of these resources gets tainted i take that very seriously and it's obviously it's obvious that these government officials in flint michigan do not care about the 
cleanliness of the water and the safety of their citizens. Why? Because it saves them money. You know, you heard at the beginning of the article, oh, you know, that uh, they started at the Detroit Municipal Water Supply, and then they they thought, well, this is, you know, too expensive, so uh, let's, let's do the brilliant thing and uh, get our water from the polluted-ass uh, Flint River and from uh, these really crappy pipes that have lead and rust and all this dangerous stuff in them. Let's do that. That's a great idea. So, you know, it's a terrible thing when, uh, when money is put ahead of safety, which it usually is because that's what a lot of the incentive structure is designed to do in many instances is put profit ahead of safety and that's absolutely shameful and just shame on the government of flint michigan for allowing this problem to persist uh for five years and counting and then on top of that the people that were most responsible you're not going to prosecute you're not going to you drop the charges on them it's just insanity. But uh, anyway, uh, I just, it's, it's nuts. So I'm glad I was able to, uh, to be back with you guys again. I don't know uh, when my next opportunity will be, but I can assure you that I will make time and uh, <clears throat> you can hear stories like this that you won't find uh most other places so you can you know basically uh tune in uh i'll try to do it you know every week it's just that you know it's a transitional period for me uh in my life so I, i'm probably gonna do them still at a sort of erratic irregular uh on an erratic irregular basis but uh, eventually, uh, I would invite you to hear me weekly rant about things like tainted water supplies and labor movements in South Korea, because you're not going to uh, hear about that in most other outlets, particularly uh, in the mainstream outlets. So anyway, um, it was good catching up with you guys today. And I will see you next time here on the Left Side of Liberty podcast. Thank you.